You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is supported by Audix. Check out their new line of Pro Studio headphones, as well as the A131 and A133 large diaphragm studio condenser microphones at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath asked us to read this. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? No, because the tree was using one of those mics with an on and off switch on it. And those are always off just when you need to hear them the most. Welcome back to the Signals of Noise podcast. My name is Michael Lawrence. These are some guys I hang out with every once in a while. Kyle Chernside and Chris Litter. Hey, that's better than I do. That's better than I do. That's better than I do. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. You know, I don't I, I don't even have anything to add to that. Uh, Please don't swipe left. <laughs> our guest this episode is Mr. Daniel Liston Keller. You know he's a professional or a serial killer because he has the three names going on. Um, yeah, three names. He's a music No, the middle name has to be Wayne for me to be a serial killer. <laughs> he is the CEO of Get It in Writing Incorporated, a uh, man after my own heart, providing uh, PR, copywriting, technical writing services, all kinds wow. of stuff for a bunch of well-restricted brands in the audio industry, including Avid, Mackie, Rankus Hines, Zildjian. I know you do wow. some work with my friends at Symmetrics. Oh, yeah. um, so Daniel, you and I play in a lot of the same sandboxes, uh, doing technical writing stuff for manufacturers. And uh, I know that that Chris has also been keeping up with all your hijinks on LinkedIn. Um, and you're Arms out of LinkedIn. all the guests we've had on the show, you look most like Robert De Niro. So we're really happy to have you on. Yay. Thanks for being here. Three names, three names, yeah. guys. It's true, man. It's true. I don't know why. Um, I get that one a lot, but yeah, it's. Uh, I, I wish I had his money. Where are you? Where are you joining us from this evening? Uh, I live just outside of beautiful scenic Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, hey, cool. I just moved back from there. It's I live, uh, uh, west Las Vegas, right between Henderson and Summerlin. We are in Henderson, yes, and uh, we we actually we moved here just before Christmas in 2019, and we had about 11 or 12 weeks to sort of explore the city, and then the whole world shut down. Ah, that's all you need in Vegas, though. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, and actually, to be honest, I probably spent way too much of my life here prior to that at various trade shows and whatnot, and you know. I, I think in Guys general, I've fishing spent... trips, on some <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all that all that lakefront property. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. this, but no, never mind. Um... Well, I, I gotta tell you, Daniel, we uh, we have a little ritual that we do here at the start of every episode, and I can tell just b- based on seeing what's behind you that you're sort of um, you're favorably positioned to come out a front runner in some ritual. I'm very happy to see the lava lamp in the background. Your stock went yes. up uh, in my book. So here's so. the game, and we're gonna start with with Kyle Chernside. Kyle Chernside, what is the coolest thing you have with an arm's reach? I brought two items tonight. I hope you don't mind. I know it's, it's starting to feel take like a antiques roadshow on this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I brought this uh, vintage Bush half court tall boy with the old logo, and then I brought this vintage piece with me because I was messing around with it the other day. The it's the SBX ninety two. 
Oh, cool. The Yamaha oh. SVX 92. Uh, I think it has a burnt input chip. You know why? Because you just <laughs> used to smash those things. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's my two items. For you tonight. know what's amazing about that unit? For as old as it is, those reverbs don't sound old and weird. They sound really cool. <laughs> and how fat, like, here's the deal. On a 990 and a 90, and even the, the Rev 5 and 7, like, how fast were you at that thing? Oh, yeah. At, yeah. at a concert. That, like, that, 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 that was so many people's first sampler, man. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, Chris Leonard, coolest I, thing within arm's reach. Well, this one's for you, Michael. Okay, buddy. Oh, oh, uh oh. So, so Michael's so infatuated for some reason with the fact that I toured a Bow Wow. So I pulled out the tour poster that we got that was like signed. Oh, oh that check was, that it, out! It, it's signed by Bow Wow, Mario, and Marcus Houston, Pretty Ricky uh, from from the uh, Scream tour. So uh, that, that's for you, Michael. I I want to I want to clear the air on this. I wouldn't say I'm infatuated as much as I think you really underplayed it because it's pretty damn it's a pretty damn cool gig and you held on us for like I don't know sixty episodes before being like hey pretty one much. time I threw with Bow Wow like bro it, it's actually multiple tours but beside the point see um, see what more is coming out all right here's all I got it's just short and sweet you ready Batman wallet oh nice and it's your that's your main wallet oh, tell me that's main, your yeah this is my actual main jam yeah it's my main wallet yeah I is I oh man. I, yeah, my 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 wallet's a Maryland flag wallet because wow. I'm from Maryland. I Daniel, am, I am I am truly outclassed. I only have a plain black wallet. <laughs> Very it's, nondescript. It's just like your heart, Daniel. It's what's inside that counts. It's true, and, and my heart is also plain and black. Yes, indeed. There's no chain attachment. <laughs> no chain, nothing like that. I'm it's like gentleman's I'm, wallet. Thank you. I'm ridiculously normal in that respect. Thank you. Um, but sort of within arm's reach, and especially, uh, actually, Chris, you reminded me of it with the with the SPX ninety stories and all of you guys with um, weird gear. So I have a piece of gear behind me, and you can't really see it because it's a little too blurred out. But I have the only one of its kind. Uh -oh. um, many, 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 many years ago, uh, I was artist relations in Europe for Shure microphones. And uh, so, of course, I was privy to all of the things that were, they were developing. And one of them is uh, a unit that never saw the light of day. It's a multi-effects unit. And it is the only thing in a rack that you will ever see that is screened. The front face of it is screened in Comic Sans font. Oh, interesting. I shit you not. I will take a photo and send yes, it Yes, we you. have to see this. We will po we'll post this on the episode with Keith. Yeah. We'll put it up on the website. Oh, yes, this is... Uh, yeah, we got to see this. Yeah. This is, yes. Speaking of Keith, uh, our editor-in-chief at Personal Web, Keith Clark, he tells me that you guys go way back. So We do indeed. Uh, so, so, yeah, I guess about 100 years ago when dinosaurs still roamed the <laughs> earth, um, I, was, um, I was living in Hamburg, Germany. I was signed to a, a sub-publishing deal with BMG Records and I was producing German bands and, and uh, you know, living the life of an insane uh, American producer living in Germany. And uh, I ran into the opportunity to work with Shure Microphones. They, um, I got hired by their German office and then uh, very, very quickly was insubordinate towards their German office and was <laughs> let go and picked up by... Um, by their American office, a, a a dear friend named Jack Cotney, um, who was I their know, artist Jack, relations guy for years. One of my first interviews. Holy cow! Yeah, well, Jack is wonderful. He's a he's a dear friend to this day. Except he's a Cubs fan. Well, you know he can't help it. He really can't. You know he's a diehard Chicago guy. 
But uh, Jack and I go back to my first phone call to him saying, well, the, the, uh, the German office is not interested, but I have the opportunity to get you guys in this little festival in Montreux, Switzerland. And, uh, you know, Jack didn't miss a beat and promptly got us involved in the Montreux Jazz Festival. And Keith and I go back to that era because I believe we were, um, I, was the, I was the artist relations guy for sure. And Mark Johnson, who you may know as well, um, was the PR guy for Meyer Sound. And so every summer we would meet together in Montreux and we would uh, invite the press for a few days for a junket, you know, come on out. Because the great thing about the jazz festival was you could be there for one night and you could see eight shows, mm. you know, cause there were multiple stages and there were always amazing people coming through. So we'd invite people out for, you know, two or three days and they would come back, you know, and write wonderful stories, which was great for us, but they would also have a wonderful time because, you know, the place is, I mean, it's not only just like this, it's truly like a, like three weeks, just time stops. You know, you're, you're in this little village and every single night people are coming through from all over the world. It's not just musicians you've heard of. It's, you know, obscure Brazilian musicians. And, uh, you know, I mean, musicians that you really have to be in that market or in that part of the world to understand or to be aware of. And so you get this really great cross section of musicians and performers and, we would just invite the press out and, you know, two or three days and they were like just floating in heaven. They loved it. And also it's a, um, in the same area in Montreux and Veve, Switzerland, there are a number of apparently highly respected world renowned culinary institutes where they train all the chefs. So every little hole in the wall restaurant that you go into is absolutely amazing. So, you know, you can go to Montreux for three weeks and come back, you know, having gained 20 pounds. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I think I think we're going to circle back to that at the end yeah. of the episode. But I, I'm curious. So um, you early on in your career, you get you started at Cherokee Studios uh, in Hollywood, which is a pretty famous, you know, pretty famous studio um, with acts like Tom Petty, David Bowie, Motley Crue, Bonnie Raitt, oh. Frank Sinatra. It just goes oh, yeah. on and on. Who? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bunch of um, nobodies. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very curious. So was that your first kind of foray into into music? How did or yeah, how, how did you get there? Well, I, I actually started out as a performing musician. and I um, I lived in San Francisco Um I started out there in a number of bands, um, did a bunch of, you know, fairly, I mean, we were big fish in a small pond in San Francisco and a bunch of different bands there. And I kind of burned out on it. We got a, I was in one band that almost had a record deal, almost got the record out the door and then everybody broke up and I was kind of crushed. And so at one point I decided, screw this, I'm leaving the, I'm leaving the pond and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go and get a gig in recording studios in LA. And of course, everybody I knew in San Francisco went, yeah, right. Sure. You know, you'll be back. Right. <laughs> and I did go, I moved to San Francisco. I got myself a little rent control department in West Hollywood and had no idea where the hell I was, but I started putting out resumes to every studio in town. And of course, having no experience whatsoever, except having been in the studio a few times and fallen in love with the process. Um, I got nowhere. And then I, I 
Cherokee was not a studio that people knew about unless they were in the industry. Mm. You know, there was no sign out front or anything like that. I happened to be living a block and a half away in this little apartment. And I was driving home one day and I see this kind of storefront and I'm like, wait a minute, I'll bet that's a studio. And I just like hung a U-turn in the middle of Fairfax and pulled up in front, parked in the red zone and walked in and was like, oh yeah, must be a studio. Cool. Can I leave my resume? And I literally, I left my resume. I got back in my car, drove a block and a half. And as I was walking in the door to my apartment, they were calling me. (laughs) Nice. Because the guy who ran the tech department there wanted someone who had no studio experience so he could train him in the Cherokee way. Nice. So it was like timing is everything, as they say, you know. And uh, he said, yeah, can you come in and talk to me? I said, dude, I'll be there in five minutes. You know, and I literally was, I walked in the door, he starts showing me around and I'm, you know, I'm realizing right away, oh, wait, this is a real studio. <laughs> you know, this isn't some crummy demo, demo studio. You've got a Trident day range there. And he said, yeah, we've got four of them. Wow. He said, and, you know, he's literally, he's touring me around the place and says, I can't take you in there right now because we've got Crosby, Stills, and Nash in a session, but come on in here. We're setting up for an Elton John date. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm kind of trying to be really cool about it and everything. You know, he says, okay, can you, um, can you start Monday? Uh, no, sorry, I got to rearrange my sock drawer. You know, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, okay, come on in tonight. Uh, it was like Friday. He said, come on in tonight. We're having a record release party for David Bowie. You can meet everybody. Damn. So I, I went from, you know, literally just wishing I could work in studios to getting a gig at one of the best studios. And uh, three weeks after he hired me, he quit. So I found myself running the tech department and, um, you know, I, I worked there for a, a little over a year. I did a lot of tech work, and I also really hung behind the engineers as much as I could and just watched and learned because that's really what I wanted out of the gig. I wanted to learn not the, you know, I knew how to use a compressor. What I wanted to see, what I knew that I had the opportunity to do was to hang over the shoulder and watch how Phil Ramone interacted with the artists, watch how Peter Asher handled sessions, Don Waz, guys like that. And it was like, holy shit, I've got, you know, not only a who's who of everybody I do know, but people I've never heard of. Mm. And I don't care if I've never heard of you. You've got enough gravitas to walk in here and book this studio. You probably got something to teach me. Mm. You know, so I, I had the opportunity to do that. I was very, very grateful for that much time to do it. Plus, I got my hands on a hell of a lot of great gear to work on and you know, I got to see what the inside of vintage microphones looked like and learn how to fix them. I got to recap a, an A-range, you know, or a whole bunch of channels for an A-range. I, I learned a lot of stuff, you know, how to align a two-inch machine, all of these different things, crisis management. And, you know, in those days, every single recording session was a crisis in I one way or so another. So many fanboy questions right now. Holy cow. Oh, dude. Do it up, Kyle. <laughs> Do it, man. What, you know. Okay, so you were there during a ton of great artists coming through. Like, what was the album that came out of that studio while you were there? You were like, I was fucking there. I was, I was, I was, that was me. I was fucking there. I would say Power Station. 
Yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. Power <laughs> station dates, man. So yep. good. Yep. So and good. and then and, and and then for for um obscure brownie points, the album itself didn't impress me, but the producer did. Um I was there for the Monkeys comeback album. Oh no. It was the wow. three of them. Nesmith had left the band. The album itself, okay, you know, it went straight where we expected it to go, but yeah. Uh, the producer was a guy I, I was unaware of, a British guy by the name of Roger Bashirian. And a lot of people haven't heard of him. I hadn't heard of him. And we're just having a conversation about something. And he's all of a sudden says, uh, yeah, that's what we did with Squeeze. I said, which oh, album? And he said, oh, only the best two, Argy Bargy and East Side Story. And I said, gee, what else have you done? Turned out he had done uh, My Aim is True and all of the Nick Lowe and Rockpile stuff, Dave Edmonds, you know, and, and again, it's like the most unassuming people, you know, are the ones who it turns out are really, you know, those waters run deep, man. And this guy had great stories, you know, but really, I think, I think what it was, wasn't that there was a specific event or album as much as it was just the idea that I was able to immerse myself within the industry into, into an area of awareness that I had not been able to, to experience before that. Second fanboy question. What musician came in and totally blew you away? Like that dude just walked by. I heard that guy pee. Like you, you, this guy came in and just like laid tracks. I mean, obviously Elton John, holy shit. Like I couldn't even imagine that, but I'm sure there's a musician that stood out to you that you were like, Whoa. Elton John was definitely fucking impressive. I had yeah. no idea how good a piano player he was. Um, but actually, again, somebody that only people in the industry have probably are probably really aware of, guitar player by the name of Dean Parks. And Dean has played on damn near everything. Uh, I had not heard his name before, but what blew me away is he walked in and he had this amazing musical vocabulary you know, where he could just like rattle off stuff. And I mean, I, I, the first time I was there, I thought to myself, I'll bet this guy gets a lot of calls. And sure enough, he was there like every week after that, <laughs> you know, he was just one of those guys that everybody called for a session because he could just play anything. Did, did someone influence your mindset going into that, um, that that's where your headspace should be? Or is it you just naturally had that headspace to uh, be that inquisitive and want to just... I wanted that. No, I when oh, wow. I was when I was a musician myself, you know, performing musician um, and a songwriter, uh, when I first moved to L.A., one of the first things I was doing, even before I got the gig at Cherokee, was um, I was writing songs and pitching them. And back then you had these things, they were called cassette roulettes, where these different songwriter organizations would book a club like on a Tuesday night when they'd normally be dark and they'd get a bunch of people in there and they'd get a publisher or a record producer or somebody who was looking for tunes for so-and-so's next album and you would pitch them a song. And I would go in there every week and I'd pitch the tracks that I had been working on in my home studio. Um, I had a little- It's kind of like open mic night. Yeah, basically, except you weren't performing live. You were just giving them a cassette. Oh, okay, you know? yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And so you'd sit in the audience, and usually they'd, like, fast forward, you know, first chorus, that's it. <laughs> yeah, next, you know. And 
I did have the dubious honor of having songs held and never recorded by a bunch of great artists. And um, at one particular one of these, I ran into a guy who happened to be Herbie Hancock's publisher um, and is still a dear friend of mine to this day. But he just he listened to the tune and he said, well, he said, you know, whose tune is this? And I, you know, <laughs> raised my hand and he says, well, the tune's OK, but who does your production? And I kind of went, look, uh, I guess I do, you know, and he said, yeah, here's my card. Call me tomorrow. And, you know, we ended up uh, we're still very good friends to this day, like 30 years later. And, you know, he engaged me for a whole bunch of demo work with a whole bunch of people. I did one of Buckethead's first demos. Um, back when he was still Brian, um, you know, it, it just was one of those things where I always wanted to be involved in the creative process. I always wanted to be involved with working with the artists because I was an artist. And so for me, um, but yeah, my, my first example, what I was really striving for was I dug George Martin's role with the Beatles because I had read things like, you know, I had read stories about how George Martin got together with the Beatles and, uh, and said, no, no, you don't start Can't Buy Me Love with the verse. You start it with the chorus, you know, change the whole freaking song, right? And I thought, okay, that's what I want to be. I want to be involved in the creative process mm. to where the artists and I can work together on stuff because I always felt like that was where I was at creatively. And so, yeah, when I got a gig at a major studio, that was one of my ultimate goals was I want to learn how you do that. I want to be part of that. Was there was there a point? So I, I love how you said. So your initial approach was you wanted to learn how um, the you know the I think the art is what drew you in, but then you you wanted to learn the tech side that made the art happen. Does that make sense? Or was, yeah, that's yeah. it exactly. Because what I wanted was I wanted to be able to translate that stuff. And you know I I, I tell this story a lot, but there was at, at the point when I was engineering myself, I. Uh, after I went to, after I worked at Cherokee, I was a, an engineer at a couple of other studios, including uh, Paramount, and um, and I, I was working indie in a lot of studios as well. But I had a guitar player once ask me, "Could you make my guitar sound a little more brown?" And at that point, acid? I was really was acid. <laughs> 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 now he, you know, it's it's an EQ setting and a little bit of compression, man. It's like you know, soften soften it up, right? But I was grateful that I had the technical vocabulary to be able to interpret that and mm -hmm. say, okay, I understand what you're saying rather mm -hmm. than saying, what are you fucking crazy? You know, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, so, so for me, it was like, yeah, getting, being able to bridge those left brain and right brain worlds, mm -hmm. that was part of it, but also being able to understand how to do that and how to be involved in the creative process while you're doing that, I think that was the, the huge thing for me. So it's like, I wanted to know enough about being an engineer that I could be an engineer, but I didn't really want to be an engineer. Hmm. I wanted to be involved in the creative process. And it ended up that, you know, a lot of times I found that it was easier to be an engineer and a producer at the same time. But sometimes you really kind of want to be able to separate yourself, you know, separate the left brain and right brain things and just get involved in the creative aspect of it with the artist and say, you know what, let's, let's work on this part here a little bit, you know, oh, I hear this over here, you know, you end up becoming a co-collaborator, mm -hmm. so to speak. So to me, that was, that was really what I wanted to get out of it. Yeah. Holy shit.
we went from power station with the Duran Duran and Robert Palmer to like Buckethead in like <laughs> less than two minutes. Well, you know, musically, man, I'm all over the map. You know, seriously, I think I've most done, of like, us are. Done, we, we've yeah. never really talked yeah. about that on the yeah. show. I think I think most of us kind of are when it comes to playing music, creating music, mixing music. Like, yeah. uh, there's so many things that we never really get into on the show, and I think that's one of them. Like, I think we all listen to some strange shit, you know, just because not only our, strange shit, but but you listen to weird segues, right? It's like yeah. I can go from you know I can go from you know Tchaikovsky to Slipknot, you know. Oh yeah, and, and it's and I think that's part of being you know being a versatile musician being a versatile artist is just like i can appreciate a lot of different kinds of music you know it, it's fun so i literally had this moment today so it's kind of funny um you're driving in my car or whatever I, you know spotify has this like daily drive like pre-made like playlist and it like plays stuff you're used to listening to right and so mind you i share my spotify account with my wife and and and, and girl daughters right um uh -oh. girl, girl daughters kids right <laughs> so so like it starts off and like i don't know uh is playing uh some pop bieber. stuff like what well, no, oh, i'm getting there yes, yes <laughs> it, because kyle and i've been on a bieber kick lately right so uh oh so, so love him i'm sorry i'm out of here man <laughs> love him. Love it, the beeps. It, it started off with like some chevelle and then it went to like pink and then went to bieber and then um i've been listening a lot of anthony hamilton lately which is a guy you know r&b guy I used to you know play with and then i went to like frozen soundtrack and like aladdin because my three-year-old daughter uh, <laughs> you know um and then um right after that um infected mushroom came on which is you know edm yeah. you know and like and jessica was like man this is really eclectic but it it proved the point of like spotify knows me in that yes i can go from you know infected mushrooms you know to Tchaikovsky. you like you said it's it's yeah. all across the board and I, it's one of the things i noticed when i was on tour speaking of the bow wow stuff right uh yeah. is you know people were like you know like hey you know they they knew me growing up that's not what i really listened to you know i'm more of like a heavier metal type of person it's like i i learned very quickly that you you uh, or like even touring with Josh Groban, right? Like I, I would not necessarily listen to Josh while in the car or whatever, or choose to, but when you're working my with whole Martin, resume, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. When you're, when you're working with an artist, whether in the studio or live, like you have to be able to put yourself in that headspace and appreciate it in its moment for what it is. And I, Absolutely, and I think, yeah. I think if you can't appreciate for, you know, R&B, rap, rock, country, whatever. If you can't appreciate what it is that you're working with, I don't think you're executing to the to the top ability that you could be executing. And you're not giving each artist what they deserve. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, I I um I was I had dinner with a guy last night who plays uh who plays bass with one of the Cirque du Soleil shows here. Mm. And we were digging into his history and he said, "Yeah, you know, I did some upright bass and jazz and stuff. I played with Nickel Creek and I'm like Dude, you know, kindred soul here, man. You know, we're we're bass players who have been all over the map. You know, I see I see the Hoffner back there, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, the Hoffner. Um, and then my other, I I got I got a couple of favorites back there. There's a Jack Cassidy. Is bass. that a Dus? Is that a Duesenberg? Is the black one a Duesenberg? No, it's a Jack Cassidy uh, Epiphone. Oh, okay. Yeah, hmm. yeah, which I I just recently hmm. got. And then there's a uh, there's a handmade fretless there from a guy in San Francisco named Doug Rumian. Uh, who just makes beautiful, beautiful guitars. I don't know if he's, I think he's probably retired by now, but uh, 
you know, I, I, I have an eclectic collection of guitars as well. Yes. Yes. But when did you get your first lava lamp? Do you remember that moment in your career? <laughs> my first lava lamp. Oh, geez. Yes. Hard hitting questions here. Hard hitting questions. <laughs> my first lava lamp was in 1984. So Daniel, I, I was thinking, you know, obviously, like I said, you know, we, we both do a lot of, you know, writing for that side of, of the business. I, I was thinking about, you know, to explain what I do in that sense, it's pretty easy. Like, oh, did you read the manual for that thing? I wrote the manual. Like everyone understands what I wrote the manual means, right? What yep. you do is a little bit different. Um, I have different. written manuals. Yes, yes. So I, I wrote most of the old M audio manuals in oh, fact. Oh, there you go. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. So blame me for that shit. Yeah. So, so <laughs> in terms of like the copy aspect of this, um, yeah, I, I, I I think Chris Chris gets I, really... I, I asked Michael every week to write the copy. He's always like, can I, you write the copy? Because I didn't want to... There's, so, there's a reason I joined the podcast i want to speak i don't want to write so i, I think in, we were talking how do you to, really feel chris our, our friend arika rust when she was on the show she's a system engineer and she said she loves neil degrasse tyson and she said i love neil degrasse tyson because he helps other people get excited about what he's excited about and, okay. and so mm. he tries to kind of spread that passion and so i think a lot of the work that you do with your company get it in writing I, I'm viewing it the same way where you really serve this, this important purpose, which is we need to tell people about this product or this service or this whatever. And it's not a go read the manual thing as much as let's help people understand why this is cool and understand why they should care about it. And let's kind of, you know, a, a lot yeah. of stuff is, yeah. um, you know, people can't choose that product for their, for their project if they don't know about it. Right. So, so you're helping companies sort of understand, help, help, Helping companies get other people to understand what it is they are offering. It's also helping to create a culture mm. in a sense. Because if you think about it, like a lot of these companies, especially in our industry, a lot of these companies have a culture. Mm. Um, you know, some of these companies, they were started by guys in a garage. You know, I mean, Pat Quilter, you know, yep. QSC or John Meyer, you know, Meyer Sound. I mean, these are companies that basically they started off with one guy, you know, who had a vision and if not for people who came out and said, okay, we're going to help you tell the world about this, mm. those guys would still be in those garages. You know, so I think it's a, it's part of it is creating a culture. Um, because I think, because I think, sorry, I'm not to you, the mm. um, <laughs> brand, brand loyalty is be often because of, is sometimes more out of culture than it is of product. Have you seriously? Seen yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And a lot of times, um, you know, what I deal with a lot of times is things like the evolution of that in the industry, because the industry has changed so much, you know, um, all of these companies have become more corporate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of them, for instance, you know, Greg Mackey, how long has it been since he had anything to do with Mackey, you know, and so there's this evolution of, as people come through as different products happen, as companies evolve from, you know, we make this and we're known for this to all of a sudden we make a whole bunch of other stuff or we've merged with, or, you know, things like that. There's, there's always a lot of messaging and stuff mm -hmm. that has to happen. Um, for me personally, uh, I got into doing video about 10 or 12 years ago. And at I'm that sorry. point, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I know it was the dark ages. Let me tell you. Yeah, it was basket. definitely the dark ages too. But, but, you know, that was kind of a cool thing because 
for me, it was a whole new medium. Mm-hmm. And as a musician, I understood editing video very well because, you know, I came, I came up in the analog days, but I learned, I learned non-linear very quickly. You know, I was actually involved in some of the first DAW experimentation way back when. And, um, you know, so for me, this was just the, the ability to add another aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, again, anything you can use as an artistic tool to help tell a story mm. is a cool thing. And, I, you know, I, to me, I've dabbled in it, not just with the marketing perspective, but just with the whole idea of interviewing people and whatnot. You know, we, we started, you know, we started a thing just to, um, <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll do a hairpin segue here too. You know, we started this thing that, that I know actually I was going to even, in, we were talking about inviting you guys onto it. Uh, 30 second chances, right? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. You had, you had, David, you had David Morgan on. Oh, dude, I've known David forever. David's wonderful, man. He's, he's, he's crazy as all hell. I love him. Um, well, so, so the genesis of that was that right after the shutdown, all these people were doing webinars, right? And it was mostly engineers. And with all due respect to many of my engineering friends, a lot of these guys are like watching paint dry. I'm sorry, but it was like, and I, and I made a remark to, um, I have a collaborator, my creative director, um, Eric Larson, I'll drop his name here because he'll thank me for it and pay me later. Um, yeah, Eric that, Larson. Can we, can we keep Eric Larson? Yeah, Eric Larson. <laughs> Eric Larson. Eric.Larson. Yeah. So, so I, I was chatting with Eric and I mentioned that I just bitching about these engineers who were really, really dry. And don't talk uh, about Kyle like that. I know. Yeah, I'm trying to be yeah. funny here. I know, man. So, so, uh, you know, these guys are doing webinars and I said, man, you know, a lot of these guys just need like a timer and one of those hooks, like they used to have in vaudeville, you know, eh, you're done. And he said, no, that's it. That's it. And so we were going to do this one thing just as a joke, a, a kind of a, a joke video with a friend of mine of, uh, you know, I'll give you 30 seconds, answer random questions and then, you know, buzzer and you're out. Right. And, uh, and I have this cool buzzer right here. See, Kick-ass. right. And so, you know, it was like, it was perfect timing. So we did one of them and put it up and another friend of mine sent me a note and said, Hey man, can I do one? Nice. And essentially that just kept happening. And uh, so I think we're like at like episode 90 something at this point for it now. Oh, we're way, we're way past that. Oh, you guys are, you guys are, (laughs) look, you guys have totally outclassed me. Okay. A a stale. Yeah. But your time to market is like five minutes on those. Dude, it's so, it's so true. (laughs) It's so true. But you know, it was, it was like a funny thing to do. And then out of that grew this other show because I kept talking like, you know, cause like, for example, David Morgan or, um, you know, another friend of mine, um, Michael Beinhorn, who I've known for years and years, you know, we'd start talking and I'd go like, well, shit, you know, that's a great conversation. I can't fit that into 30 seconds. Hmm. So we started another one called Insights and Sound and we, you know, doing like legit interviews with people. And you're like feeling them out at first. You're like, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, actually, you could be interested. (laughs) Yeah, you know, (laughs) but but it's kind of cool because, um, I have been doing these panels for, for a number of years now, like the NAM panels. And I really dig it because it's a chance to do some educating, you know, and it's a chance to, 
you know, when, when we were coming up, you could learn in the studio, like I had an opportunity to do. People don't have that opportunity now. You know, you can't, you can't get a gig in a studio. If you can, you're really lucky, but most people can't. Most people don't have that opportunity to look over the shoulder of a producer and learn all that stuff. And so I started doing panels on things like that at NAMM. And the response was such that I felt like I really want to do more of this, you know, because the opportunity to educate, the opportunity to hand down some of that wisdom, mm -hmm. you know, and I kept having students come up to me after these things and say, wow, you know, I mean, could you do one on this? Could you? And so, you know, I just really love the opportunity to be able to share the knowledge and, you know, it presented the opportunity to do it. So what the hell, you know? So I'm curious. So like on your website, you kind of talk about like who we are, what we do, all this stuff. Right. And one of the mm -hmm. key things is, is story. Right. And, and that's what I like about both. Um, so some of what I do with how we got loud yep. um, or yep. like when you're interviewing David Morgan and stuff like, so the reason why um, it's so fascinating to sit down with someone like David Morgan or others who can just talk for freaking hours, you know, um, <laughs> is uh, it's, a a better education in my opinion like learning through story form at least for me is way better than just all right here's the best five tips on how to set your eq and do this, this absolutely right yeah. um so I, how i'd be curious was there a point when you switched into um this marketing writing artist relations you know where your your path went did something a light bulb hit that goes hey the story side of this is something that I can help cultivate and grow. And this is what's going to resonate most, more so than just hear facts. Long, long ago, man, I've always been in the story. I've always been into great songwriters. Mm. And the thing about great songwriters is it's a three minute movie, man. You know, it's like, if you listen to some of the great songwriters, they can tell a whole story. They can set a whole stage mm -hmm. in two lines. Oh, you know. real quick, Cyber, I have to do this. This this is the appreciation that Kyle and I have for Bieber. I'm just saying. If, uh, it, it is. Okay, oh, no. okay. Hey, hold on. Hear me out. Listen to his I was going to say Harry Chapin, Daniel. I just want just no, 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 no. <laughs> so hear me out. He, so, like, he has a song. It, uh, one of the which most recent ones is Monsters with um, – he has two songs um, that I like, but Monsters with – he's just Shawn Mendes. Like, he talks about – it's a story of his childhood. He's like – Y'all, you guys, you built me up to this pedestal, and then I had one failure. He's like, "Who made this monster?" He's like, "You guys made the monster." You know what I mean? Like, he's telling a story. Like, it's it's deep, yeah. it, and it, yeah, I, it sure. did hit home because I got texts from both Chris and Kyle at like five thirty in the morning, and they were like, "Dude." I'm in my feels real deep right now. It's just <laughs> right, so, Dude, so I, I had to go light some candles and like get so my oils out, burn some about. sage, and yeah, yeah. man. And, <laughs> and Daniel, I love what you said about like the culture. So that got me thinking. Like, if I get called to write a manual for a device, step one for that for me is send me the thing, whatever the thing yes. is, send it yes. to me. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you are trying to tell the story or the culture of of a company, how do you? get acquainted with what they're doing and get in their universe and learn mm. their culture. And how do you yeah. kind of good steep question. yourself in that? It's a I good like question. That. And a lot, most of the time I do try and visit them. Um, it's harder now that people are more virtual, virtual and more scattered, but I've always been really big on like, you know what, let me come out for a day. Let me hang. Mm -hmm. Let me get to know a little bit about, it. let me learn a little bit about your history. Um, you know, uh, one of our first clients years and years ago was Mackie. Yeah, you know, like, and 
That on, menu wait, wait, is wait, hilarious, wait, wait. by the way. Oh, all right. So <laughs> as a kid growing up, right? So I have this picture that I show um, of my dad mixing. I was about 10 years old at the time. My dad's wearing his Mackie shirt. Uh, I'm wearing a shirt that says, it's okay, I'm with the band. Um, my, <laughs> my dad was a legit like fan of Mackie because of this culture. Like, so their manuals, if no one knows what their old school manuals were, like littered with, not littered, not the right word, um, smattered. Peppered. Peppered. Smattered with just total jokes. They had the the, the dog, and I forget the dog's name, um, but... So my dad was such a fanboy of Mackie at the time that he literally like wrote to them and we got um like tattoos like like um like um the running man tattoo uh yeah the running man tattoo uh-huh. um and like the dog like the uh, stick ones like the um yeah. temporary yeah. the temporary mm-hmm. temporary tattoos like we had to mail to our house like my dad and I would wear them to gigs and stuff like that but, I love it but, I love but, it like, but like that was a culture it was a culture yeah, thing like it was you, like. It was fun to read that manual, and like prior to that era, I don't know that manuals were ever fun to read. No, and and you know it was the culture went beyond that. I mean, like like when I came in to work with the company, um, one of the first things they said was, "Okay, can you go and uh, do an article? Uh, Snoop Dogg is having a Sprinter van converted to be a, a rolling studio. Can you go out and hang with Snoop for the day?" Yes. <laughs> yes is the answer to that. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and I mean, you know, do I remember enough of what I wrote? Probably not, but you know, it was, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a blast, man. You know, the, the, the fact that there are companies like that, that have that kind of culture, mm-hmm. that's a fun thing, you know? And then there are companies that are a little more stodgy, you know, and I won't name any names or anything like that, but you know, you, you do, you want to get to know the culture the same way when you're working with an artist you want to get to know who that person is. Uh, if you're working with a band, you want to establish a different rapport with each mm-hmm. person in the band, you know, because that's really how you understand how to tell their story. You got to know who they are. Awesome. And I, Chris, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, how the culture is a, is a huge in, influence on why people might choose a certain product or over another product. Um, you know, I, I can think about my own experiences of that all the time where, you know, it's not just like, Hey, this tool is a good fit for what I'm trying to do, but you know, these people, i like the way they approach things and the way they handle things and the way they lay things out and kind of, I feel a similar philosophy. Yeah. And that comes to mind, our friend, Jeff Hawley from Alan Heath, you know, good friend of our show. Uh-huh. Um, that guy. <laughs> he has, he, he does a similar type of work that, that you do, Daniel. And he said something on our show that really stuck with all of us, which is like, hey, man, you're in the music industry. You know, it's not just being a rock star. It's not just pushing a fader up and down like that. That's a job. And so we have a lot of younger people, early career people listen to the show. It's important for us to kind of reinforce that over and over again. This is a legitimate career path for you. Not just it's a legitimate career path, but the other thing that I think is important and that I try and bring to the fore also is there's a whole lot of careers that you don't know exist, Hundred percent, you know, yep. and to be honest, those people have better stories than the rock stars. Most of the time, <laughs> you know, it's like when you, when you hang out at, you know, the Hilton bar or, you know, someplace, I mean, you hear stories, you know, when, when I hang out with David Morgan or, or, you know, um, another one of my favorite, uh, for the house guys is Pablo Wheeler. I don't know if you know Pablo, but he he toured with Dylan for years mm. and with David Byrne and David Bowie. <laughs> These guys have stories, mm-hmm. you know, that are so awesome and so much fun. And to tell those stories, 
it's not that it just opens people's eyes, you know, young students. It's not just that it opens their eyes to, oh, there's a job I didn't even know existed, but it opens their eyes to the idea that, man, you can do a whole lot of different things in this industry mm. and they're all career worthy and they're all really, really good and really, really fun. And, you know, sample everything, man, try everything, you know? Mm. And that's the, that's the yes. thing that I think is so great about you know the opportunity to go to these recording schools i mean on one hand it kind of sucks because yeah you don't get that real world experience but it's really kind of cool that you get the idea that, that you get the opportunity to discover that oh i could be a sound designer or you know i could do foley or you know mm -hmm. i could be a lampy you know okay don't do that um, yeah i know to the lost causes you know <laughs> You have to figure out what you don't want. Also, it's not yeah, just yeah. Yes, you want. Yes, so you don't exactly. want to do lights. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, that, there's that's that's the other thing that people overlook. If you go and you try something and you go, "Wow, I absolutely hate that," that was a valuable experience. Yeah. Because now you know that yes. you don't want to do that. Yes, and not just that, but you know, you 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 try it out and you realize, okay, I didn't really like that, but I liked this aspect of that. You know, mm -hmm. maybe there's something else I can do there. I mean, it's I'm a firm believer in kind of letting the path light up in front of you as you walk it, mm. you know, and that's how life is for most of us. And, and especially if you've been in a multifaceted career or, you know, I like to say I'm on career 12 already, you know, I mean, because that's what happens, man. You know, you, you do one thing and it leads to something else and you meet one person and that leads to a different connection that you didn't expect. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's how life unfolds. And I think, you know, when you're young, when you're in school, you have the, you get this idea of, oh, this is the thing I want, you know, yeah. and you don't pay attention to everything else around it. You just hone in on that one thing. And meanwhile, you know, what's that old saying about we make plans and the universe laughs, you know, and all this other stuff starts happening. And, you know, I would I would probably guess that 90 percent of us end up someplace completely different than where we thought we were going to end up. Are you burning sage too, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. Star child. No, no. It, it's, it, it, well, actually, it's similar to a conversation I had with one of my mentees earlier this week, where it's like you're you're looking you're looking a hundred miles down the road, and you have no idea what's forty feet in front of you. Yep, so, I call it aperture blur. Yeah, man. So, like, yeah. you know, you know that's, the, that's the video guy, and you're just saying. Uh, yep, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's really important to you know and. I encourage people to think about where, where they want to go down the road and think about, you know, kind house, of where house. they want to end up. Yeah, but my house, but at the same time, there's this idea of, all right, well, what, what's on the, what's on the table right now. Mm. And yeah. what, yeah. what's the best choice I can make out of these options. And then you, you try it. If you don't like it, then you go back and do something else. So um, a, a lot of career anxiety for people, younger people in particular, and that's okay. You know, yeah. but you know, the thing is, you know, what you were just saying about, you try it and if it doesn't work, but, most of the time, what happens is you try it, and even though it doesn't work, it leads to something else. Right. You know, and that's right. what I think is the really valuable thing is to be open-minded enough to just follow the path. And and then it comes down to work ethic too. Just because you can't get something doesn't mean you do nothing and wait well, for that thing to come to you. It's like, funny, man. I just did an interview the other day with um, Ross Hogarth, old buddy of mine. He's a record producer, wonderful guy, and. Ross was talking about how he came up when he came up, man, it was like, I'll do whatever shit other people don't want to do because yeah. even though it's a pain in the ass, 
the fact that it's a pain in the ass means there's an opportunity there. Hmm. You know, and if you can have that kind of positive attitude, I mean, I don't always have that kind of positive attitude, but, you know, if you can maintain that kind of an attitude, man, you know, the world's your enchilada. And like, not only this idea, by the way, get perfect reference. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's approaching. It's approaching quickly. Um, This idea about people say, oh, you know, so-and-so is lucky because they get to do something they really like. Um, or, or find something you're passionate about. I, the, the the reframe for me is like bringing your passion to whatever you're doing. And, That's right. And, and I'll say, you know, this might be a, a, a bit of a revealing example, but when I joined up with Rational Acoustics two and something years ago, Jamie called and he said, all right, your first project is we're releasing a version of Smart that just does SPL and you're going to write the manual. And my initial reaction was that sounds really boring, right? <laughs> yep, um, yep. But two some odd years later, I've been full-time digging into this topic and reading papers and been on panels and published my own research on it. And all of a sudden, I think this is the most interesting thing in the world. And I've, I've discovered a passion for it. And it wasn't because a passion for SPL measurements was lurking under my skin. It was just, it's about bringing your passion yeah, to this. Okay, maybe. <laughs> right? But but Nerd. figure out what's cool. Whatever you're working on, figure out what's cool about that. Figure right, out what you can dive right. into, man. I'm all mm-hmm. about that, you know? And bring that to whatever you do. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, you know, having done, uh, according to LinkedIn, for the last 19 years, <laughs> you've done get it in writing, right? Yeah. So you've done yeah. PR and media for the last, you know, 19, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, where was the point, because that's a shift from what you were doing earlier in your career, where was the point where you knew that, like, that was your trajectory, you've air quotes here made it like beyond imposter syndrome like hey like this is legit because i mean you do you know serious level top level pr media stuff was there a point where you were like hey this is this is it i've made it this is clicking about 20 minutes ago no um (laughs) (laughs) same you know man it's funny because we talk about imposter syndrome a lot and i've had this conversation with a lot of people the fact that we are most of us self-taught means that there will always be a little tiny bit of imposter syndrome. Mm. Buddy of mine who is a sound designer, he's been world renowned award-winning sound designer said to me once, I still wake up every day and I'm afraid that somebody's going to open the door to my studio and say, you have no (laughs) idea what the fuck you're doing. You know, it's, but at the same time, you know, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, maybe a couple of years into it, somebody said to me, well, we need to hire a professional, you know, and I thought, you're talking about me, <laughs> you know, because, you know, really, literally, I've been self-taught at everything I've done. I taught mm-hmm. myself to be a bass player, and I made a living as a bass player, taught myself to be an engineer, made a living at that, you know, I'm, and and I think when you are, uh, the word is autodidact, you know, which is basically you, you look at shit, you figure out how it's done, and then you go and do it, you know, and you make mistakes, Chris likes and, that word. I see. Yeah, I can, I can see it. I'm processing. Yeah, I can I'm see pro- the processing. Yeah, man. I can hear the wheels <laughs> turning from here. Yeah, it's, it's, but you know, it's really true that when you're doing that to a certain extent, because you're, you're learning that stuff yourself, you're creating in a vacuum. And yeah. so, like, give you a perfect example. Um, as I say, I taught myself to do video editing as well. And I've done a bunch of videos, probably, you know, two or 300 videos for clients over the years. And I guess about maybe 10 years ago, I'm interviewing this guy 
for a product review uh, or a product that he's using for one of our clients. It's like a field recorder. And this guy has done like documentaries for National Geographic and PBS, and he's been all over the world and everything. And he's describing to me his editing process when he does an interview. And as he's describing it to me, I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit, that's how I do it. Kick I guess ass. I'm doing it right, you know, and so so really it is a matter of, you know, you teach yourself stuff and then you just hope you're doing the best job you can. And, you know, isn't that the way musicians come up with, you know, their own style? Yep. For example. And, and, and that's why I don't think people should be so, so worried out about the imposter syndrome, because then it goes back on your art side. You know, everything exactly. reverts back to your art side. And we're I all think faking it, man. It, you and know, I think we're all learning. And we've had the discussion on our podcast before with a lot of people uh, just recently, like, hey, just try stuff. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, move on to the next thing. And, I, and even if it doesn't, you're going to have learned something. Yeah. Yep. And you know? I'll, my dog's growling for some reason. The, the other thing I'll say about that is, uh, see, the, the growling distracted me. Oh, did I, <laughs> did I piss him off? I was like, no, he's, he's, a, he's a racing greyhound. He's recently retired, so he's still oh, okay. settling in. Um, but... <laughs> You know, this idea where you're sort of questioning yourself all the time, like, gee, am I am I qualified to do this? Mm -hmm. um, there's there's an aspect of that that's an inherently healthy reaction, right? I because agree. because people who go out and do stupid, reckless things don't have that self-check. It's just so it's the same thing as like uh, I remember my dad even telling me too, like you know, years ago doing shows, he was like, There's always a little bit of um a nerves at the beginning of a show. Like if you don't ever have a little bit of nerves, a little bit of angst or whatever. Y you're, something's wrong you're or yeah, yeah you're gonna be careless about it or you're gonna overshoot something or whatever yes. like there's still like even if i'm doing like straight up the corporate shit that i do now um is you know you know some ceo talking on stage there's still like this moment of like you know like yeah. just deep breath like hey i'm focused yes. it's a live moment it's a thing like you know i could screw this up and like it's enough edge to keep on your toes but still be confident in what you're doing well, I think and about. I'll, I think I think oh, it sorry, keeps you dude. learning too. Yeah. Doesn't when I it? got when I got trained, uh, a good mentor of mine's a, a rigger, and he trained. I don't. I'm not a rigger, but I know some rigging principles, and he's trained me on that over the years. And the first time I was up on high steel, he was like, "Is this? Is you know, is this causing you some anxiety?" And I was like, "Yes." And he's like, "Good." He's like, "If you ever feel that you're not at all concerned and you're not at all anxious mm. about being up here, he's like, you should get down." Yeah, because you're, you're about you to be too comfortable, and that's yeah. where you kill somebody. So yeah, that's when um, they buy those kilts. Is yeah. right after they get too comfortable, oh! <laughs> they buy you tilla kilts, and they become your rigor. All right, so uh, I'm thinking who else you've had on the show from your from your region, uh, because I don't know a lot about the the cuisine options down your way. Daniel. Oh, There's I don't know everything, but, man. But there's but everything. When you guys are out here. Trust me, I will take you to good restaurants. So where are you taking us? That's the question that we were building up to here. Or, where are we going? or you, I'll give you multiple choice. Okay. Or what you talked about, some amazing food at Montreux. So what are the other, the most epic meal you ever had there? Or if we come to town, where are you taking us? One of those two. Oh, the most epic meal I had in Montreux. Oh, seriously. Uh, yes, and it is something that I did not expect I would like, but it was ostrich meat. Oh, ostrich is amazing. I've is it had it. No, yes. Oh, hell yeah, it, it really is, man. I, I had it seriously. In South, I had it in South Africa. The first night I was in South Africa, uh, we were in Johannesburg, and things got mixed up. We got to stay at this like castle hotel thing or whatever, and I go to the menu and it says ostrich, and I'm like, hell yeah, I'll have that. Also, side note, <laughs> they also had Amstel 
uh, not Amstel Light. It was Amstel's. The first time I've all ever seen like just Amstel's. Like I gotta have that too because wow. when in Rome, I've never seen it before. So yeah, Ostrich is amazing. I, I highly recommend. Yes, and and I would I, I gotta say, man, um, every single restaurant in Montreux is amazing. Not only that, but the worst part about it was that even I didn't even have to leave the place because catering. Mm. was amazing it, there's there's this weird thing about the jazz festival and i don't know if it's still true but back when i was there there's a company it's called the swiss cheese and chocolate company oh, t- oh i love and, this place already yeah, well, oh no 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 it has nothing to do with either one. Oh, fuck that place right no <laughs> the guy who owns it is first of all he runs a catering service and he does all the big concerts and stuff so he had like the kitchen set up constantly you could always find food 24 7 okay <sighs> But he also back in. right. Um, but he I mean, also owns almost every. He probably owns every Hammond B three on the continent of Europe. He hmm. provides all the backline wow. for the entire festival for nine stages. Wow! So the dude runs a backline company and a catering company. That's fitting. It's 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 so bizarre. But you know, and and the guy who owned, I mean, a crazy guy. He used to used to ride up on his motorcycle wearing shorts and cowboy boots. Love it in Switzerland. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was always, always great food, man. Absolutely. But um, yeah, when you guys are out here, I'll, I'll figure out someplace good to take you. I promise. So Daniel, if you could define your legacy, how would you define it? I want to be one of the helpers. I want to be one of the guys that people come to and say, please, you know, help me learn something or no, even better. I want to be one of the guys who people come to and say, you helped me learn something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that to me is probably the biggest reward. You know, when I do like the, the, the tech track panels or panels like that, and people come up to me afterwards and they say, Oh man, thank you. You know, I, I didn't even realize that these options existed. Because man, it's, this is a really, really, you know, it's a wonderful industry, but it's a really competitive industry. Mm-hmm. And it's an industry that will eat you alive if you don't know where you're going. And so I would love to be able to just think that I have helped people somehow. If I've done that, cool. All the rest of it is gravy. And I love that. But I also want to just tell anyone who's listening, Daniel is signed up as one of our mentors for mm. our mentorship program. So if you're interested in the stuff that he's talking about I'm interested. On, on this episode, <laughs> reach out to us and uh, or reach out to Daniel. And, and can he uh, can he help me write the copy for the episodes? Is that- I think yes. you're stuck with me, buddy. Oh, okay. uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. It's been just great chatting with you. Uh, where, can pleasure. Folks, where can folks catch up with you and, and see more of what you're doing? Um, well, they can, they can search the hashtags, uh, insights in sound or 30 second chances. Um, they can find all that stuff on Facebook. They can find it on our YouTube channel, get it in writing. They can go to our website, get it in writing.net. Um, or they can just like shoot a flare in the air and hope that I can answer. There he goes. And we'll we'll post uh, links in the description of this episode or on the uh, on the website of uh, of your YouTube channel and all that stuff. So cool. and a I, excellent and a photo of your uh, yes, your you unique shore device. Yes, and, yes, and I, yes, indeed. I feel like I could do like a whole fanboy episode with you too. Like I really <laughs> one more, should, one, more Kyle, one more, one more. Okay, okay, one, right, more. one more. Um, so you said you worked at some movie theaters too, or at movie production places too, didn't you? 
or Paramount? You were no, doing? I worked at Paramount Studios, which is uh, okay, which okay. yeah. So I, I don't have really really great stories there, except that I did engineer in the room where Hendrix cut Cry of Love. See, God damn it! Ah. <laughs> <laughs>